So this evening, I want to uh, look uh, at two different things. Uh, one is an expression uh, we hear a lot. So I would like to look at that expression. Uh, either it, its shape is uh, be with things as they are, or be with what it is. So I'd like to look at that. And then the other thing I would like to look at is uh, what I call the four stages of uh, letting go. And so the first thing, uh, there is this uh, phrase uh, we hear a lot uh, in uh, meditation circle, mindfulness circle. Be with things as they are, or it is what it is, or be with things as it is. And so I was curious about this because uh, somebody uh, some time ago came up to me and said, you know, I have this difficulty, uh, what do you think about it? And my advice uh, was to creatively engage with it, skillful mean, etc. So kind of a quite an active, proactive approach. And the person said, no, 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 you know, I must be with things as they are. And so this gave me the impression that it meant, or that person understood, that they must endure. That the aim, partly of the practice, was to just, whatever happens, be with it. Just endure. But I was uh, not totally uh, convinced by that interpretation. And also, I was not sure it was that helpful. And also, you could interpret it in other way, be uh, within as they are, in a more like a metaphysical way, which I was not so sure about either. So then I, uh, I am lucky there, I checked with Stephen, uh, where does this phrase come from? And I said, is it like invented? Is it like a new thing? And he said, no, no, you, you find it, it's kind of so, uh, yeah, referred it, me to, to the thing which I wrote. I mean, it's a little of a long sentences, uh, which I put on the board. So I'm not going to spell it, because it has Y and lots of stuff in it, and normally <laughs> should have several A's and different little <laughs> wriggle on, on it, but I kind of wrote a simple version on the board if you want to see what it looks like. <laughs> so the phrase is yata putam nyanya dasana. That's actually where it comes from. And it, it appears often in the text. And so what does this yata putam nyanya dasana mean? Actually, it means to see and know things as they arise as they happen. So actually it's quite, I would say, uh, to me it's quite a creatively engaged feel. It's to see and to know things as they arise, as they happen. So it's not saying just be there. It's not either saying go more deeply into it. It's painful, go more, 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 you know. You want more pain. I don't think that's what it's saying either. But it's really, in a way, a reference to the three characteristics, which is part of the meditation. We have the calming, we have the anchoring. But a big part of the meditation is about that. Yatam bhutam yanadasana. See and engage with things as they arise, as they happen. Because in a way, why say that? Because often, in a way, we know things way down the line. 
they have a reason, they have happened, and whoops, we're not at the beginning. We're not as, we don't see often the arising. We're more in the effect of the happening, or the effect of the arising, our reaction to it. And to me, this is something really important in terms of the practice, to really kind of through the practice, through the mindfulness, that probing quality, that exploring quality I was mentioning the other day. So what we're trying to explore, to probe, is what is going on? What, what is this? What is this experience we find ourselves in? And to me, it's through that that actually will arise wisdom and compassion. That actually, tomorrow I'll talk more about this. Of course, we can directly cultivate loving kindness, compassion, rejoicing, equanimity. But we can also, in a way, cultivate and experience those through this looking deeply, through this seeing and knowing things as they arise, as they happen. So let's look at this, uh, what we, in a way, supposed to look at. And so what arises, what happens? In a way, you could say thing arise, thing happen because things change. If there was no change, you could nearly say there would be no life, there would be no movement. So in a way, but we have a tendency uh, in a way to make things last longer or want them to last longer or not want them to change or not to change in that way. So in a way, it's kind of looking, what happens? What, you could nearly say, what is interesting about change? It's a fact that you have two types of change. You could say you have the ultimate change, and then you have what I would call the regular change, the ordinary change. Ultimate change is a fact that at some point in time, we will disappear. We will not be there anymore. So basically, that one is about death. And why would that make a difference to really be aware of that ultimate change? Because at one level, we are not dead yet. This is, I think, very important. And this is something my teacher used to say a lot. Your life rests upon a single breath. But do we live as if our life rests upon a single breath? We often, in a way, take ourselves, take others for granted. We have the time. What does it matter? But this really being aware experientially of ultimate change, I think is where the compassion, the caring, is going to arise. It is not a bland, a bland mindfulness. It's a caring, it's a loving, it's a compassionate mindfulness, especially because of that point. When I consider myself do I consider myself like, you know, I should be such and such person and I should not be such and such person and really, you know, why have I not done this yet? Or, and so in a way, we consider us, ourselves, often in an abstract way. And we be quite critical of ourselves. But if we looked at ourselves and think, hmm, I am alive right now. Isn't it amazing I am alive right now? And that this knowing that, that this can go at any moment, 
could we have a different relationship with this human being? Could we have more kindness, more compassion for this frail, fragile human being? And when we look at others, when we meet someone else, do we meet the person at that moment as, do we see and know them as that person as a reason then? Or do we actually meet the past story or the future expectation or how we want them to be, how they have not been? the story we have with them. And to me, when really we know this, that anybody's life rests upon a single breath, I think it does change our relationship. Because we start to see people more as human beings right now. And how is this human being right now? To me, I know it has helped me enormously taking care of my mother, not fixing her either in the past, but even then, not fixing her in the moment. She, sometimes she's really out of it, and sometimes she's less out of it. And we don't know. To me, this is what is so interesting to see. It changes. Can I meet the person in the moment? Or do I meet the yesterday person? Or do I meet the fear of the tomorrow person? Or am I with the person right now? How can I help this person who has a reason right now? Then the other aspect of change is what I call the gift of change. The fact that we can change. We have a potential for change. And this, I think, is again, it's a compassionate, it's a caring, loving, loving mood. That when you see somebody, or you look at yourself, I think one of the ways we can be uncaring to ourselves, or uncaring to others, is to say, you are always like this you will never change. I mean, this is like a, a prison sentence. Mm -hmm. This is it. There is no hope. But we can try. There is genuinely change, one way or another. We are not fixed, we are not solid. And so to me, this is kind of like... Um, a caring move that when we meet somebody, I mean, they might not change now, immediately, but they have the potential for change. We might not change now, immediately, but we have the potential for change. And people can surprise us, and we can surprise ourselves. But of course, you can have two kinds of change. You can have like what I would call the intentional change. That purposefully you change. And we can do that. But also, change can happen to us. And so I think we have to see that with change, you can have a gradual change, or you can have a sudden change. And so it's kind of like, because people sometimes think, oh, you know, it can only be gradual, or it can only be sudden. I think it can be both. It depends. Sometimes gradually we work on something intentionally, and then something can flower, can blossom. And sometimes all the condition comes together, and it happens. What I would call a moment of ungrasping, the moment of unfixing. So in a way, you could nearly say, can we <coughs> allow ourselves, allow others to have the possibility to change at some point and come with that generous attitude? 
Then you have the other characteristics. And this one is one which is called Dukkha. And Dukkha has many different aspects. One of them is unpredictability. This is an interesting one, which follows on from the first one. Because things change, and because they're not, we're not in control a lot of the time, things are unpredictable. And it's interesting, our relationship with the fact that things are unpredictable. And at the same time, most of the time, they continue. Like most of the time, things change, but not too much. So, so as things change not too much, we kind of like get comfortable. Like, okay, that's the way it is. That's the way it's, continue, it's going to continue to be. The impression, what I call the generalizing principle. And then in the midst of that, boom, then you have the impredictability of the weather, of techniques, of the internet, you are told, and then poof, suddenly it's gone. Uh, what happens often in our little village is electricity goes. Sometimes it's very brief, sometimes it's a little longer. So you kind of, you know, happily typing or doing something and then it goes. Or you might have an important meeting and suddenly the thing is gone. You know, Oh, okay, impredictability. So it just happened. <laughs> and here it's kind of see and know that it has a reason. Can we creatively engage with it? Also, it can mean unsatisfactoriness. And here we have to be careful. It doesn't say we cannot have satisfaction but it's saying we cannot have permanent satisfaction. And that's what we have to be careful about. We are, again, back to the generalizing principle. We have this feeling that at some point there should be some kind of, I don't know, relatively constant pleasant feeling tone. Number five and a half. <laughs> at least. And so it's kind of like something, you know, something. I mean, it's nice. I agree, it's nice, but it's kind of this assumption, you know. It has to continue. And it's interesting that, that uh, feeling of wanting something which continues, which doesn't change. But Life grows. That's a thing with life. It grows, it's changed. And so in a way, can we have a different type of satisfaction? Can we have a temporary satisfaction? Can, have a, can we have a movable feast? And can it be, can we things in a different way? Not expecting satisfaction but enjoying it while it's there, knowing it's not going to last. So enjoying it while it's there, seeing it while it's there. And with that one, the third meaning of uh, dukkha is in that characteristic dukkha dukkha, which means pain. And so in a way, it's this see and know pain as it happens, as it arises. But that is so difficult because pain is painful. Pain is also isolating. Nobody can experience your pain for you, however altruistic, empathetic. Only you experience it. And so in a way, we're not always in pain, but at times we experience pain. So how can we be with this unpleasant feeling too? And again, of course we can be with it. But personally, I think maybe we can be with it in a creative way. And then part of the creative aspect is the fact that it's not always there. 
It depends on different conditions. It also depends on how I grasp at it. Do I amplify it? Or do I creatively engage with it? Do I add to it? Or do I see the different aspect of it? So you know we have to be careful. The practice is not just, you know, sit there, suffer, it will pass, never mind. But more, how did it come about? How can I help myself within it? There is this wonderful book by, um, by Darlene Cohen, uh, who now has passed away, but uh, when she was 40 years old, she suddenly had uh, rheumatoid arthritis, very badly. And she was a meditation teacher and very accomplished, very busy. And then she had the illness very badly. And so she wrote a, a book about you know, finding the joy in the heart of pain. And what I found was so useful about her book was the way she shows that there are so many different ways to be with pain. Sometimes she would just moan, and her husband and son would moan with her because she was so much in pain. Sometimes she was just lie there on the bed and just be aware in such a clear way of everything in that room. So you're really using mindfulness in a way to bring spaciousness to the pain, to be aware of life in that moment. Sometimes she just ate ice cream, watching TV, and sometimes she did special exercise which made she did not have the pain in the same way. And sometimes she went canoeing on rapids. And to me, what it shows is that there's so many different ways to be with pain and that it will be according to the various conditions within myself and outside of myself. But I think in terms of meeting people who are in pain, I think it's very important to remember when we see and know things as they arise, to see and know that with pain, for myself, for others, it will be painful and it will be isolated. And so through that, seeing and knowing having compassion for ourselves and others. Then you have the third characteristic, and this is what is called anatta, which Stephen likes to translate as not-self, because generally it's translated as no-self. So, not-self. So in a way, this might give the impression that actually the practice is about not existing, or the practice is about disappearing, that at the end of the retreat, there'll just be a little puff of smoke <laughs> and the cushion. And actually what it means is not that. It's not about disappearing. But actually, it's seeing that we are a flow of conditions. A flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And that, in a way, the practice is an exploration of that. And to me, that's what is so beautiful about the practice and is endless. Because there are so many conditions, inside, outside, to discover how they influence each other, how they form us, how we engage with them. And so in a way, to me, one of the key to that seeing and knowing, how do we arise? Yatam Buddha Nyanadasana, this also applies to us. Can we see and know how we arise, how we happen? 
What does our life depend upon? Generally, our life depends upon things outside of us. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the house we live in, the medicine we take. Even the monks and the nuns who lead very simple lives needed this prerequisite. Food, shelter, clothes, medicine. So in a way, if we look at that, how do I live? How do I survive? How do I arise? We can see that our life depends on others. Depends on a lot of energy going into the food, clothes, lodging, etc. And so through that, having in a way compassion, having love, having appreciation about what helps us to live, what helps us to happen, to arise. And so that's why, personally, I think this, um, to say just be with things as it is or things as they are is a little limiting to this yata bhutan, which I think is encouraging us to meet our experience in a creative way, to discover all the different conditions that are within us, outside of us, how they come together in different ways, and how can we creatively engage with that. So in a way, part of the mindfulness is actually about the seeing and the knowing. So we see more clearly what's going on. We know more clearly, oh yeah, this has a reason there. Oh yeah, this has a reason there. So it's really an exploration. But, but not an exploration for its own sake. To me what is important is within that exploration this compassion, this love, this rejoicing arises, this equanimity arises. To see that those qualities also arise out of the sea, arise out of the knowing. Then another thing I wanted to look at a little bit was look at, again, this idea, again, we hear a lot about it, let go. I mean, I know I even have a book called Let Go. I wanted to call it creatively engaging, but it was not as zingy. So my publisher, which generally the publisher are the one who gives the title, and so the publisher wanted to call it Let Go. And so then there was a subtitle, A Buddhist Guide to Breaking Free of Habits. But what does it mean, this let go? Because I think, you know, you sit here, you sit here in meditation, and you're kind of, you know, suddenly you sit here, you calm, yes, 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 breath, yes. And then suddenly a memory comes up. You know, somebody a year ago said something to you and it wasn't pleasant and how could they say this and really, you know, and when I meet them again and then you start to plot revenge. <laughs> very <laughs> compassionate activity uh, within the meditation. And then suddenly you see it and you think, let go, let go, let go. But they did this, let go, let go, let go. But they did this. You know, it's interesting this, you know, let go. You know, or you have very Buddhist friends and they're very profound. They, you come to them with your big trouble. They say, let go. <laughs> I don't want to let go. So what does it mean, this letting go? And I think in a way, what we have to look like, uh, you know, after many years of uh, meditation, it seems to me that we have to see the letting go as many shapes. Because I think often 
we see the letting go as what I would call an eradication program, an annihilation program. I will never, ever do this again. Or this will never, never happen to me again. You know, like you have a major breakthrough, you sit in meditation, suddenly you have this, wow, insight, yes. I see this so clearly. I am sorted forever after. <laughs> you know, and two months later, you react in a unskillful way. And you think, wait a minute, you know, I was sorted. <laughs> so possibly you were sorted at that moment, but not forever after. So personally, what I think is more interesting to look at is to see that there are different types of letting go, and each is as important as the other. Because generally we want the big one. We want the major one. We want the one with the big E. Enlightenment. With the kind of, you know, like uh, the Christmas tree. Enlightenment. You know, suddenly we lift off and we kind of... Shh. That's what we generally think. Let go is about, just like the big. A big breakthrough. Uh, in my tradition, in the, the song tradition, when I train, they're really big on this big breakthrough. But personally, I wonder if we could not look at it in a more kind of like, again, to see that it's conditional. The breakthrough is also conditional. It's also changeable. And so, personally, I see it in four stages which are not better than the other, and all have this aspect of letting go. Because personally, I would say let go means a moment of de-grasping, a moment where we grasp, and then there is this de-grasping. So in a way, letting go as de-grasping, not fixing, not amplifying not exaggerating. And so the way I look at it is first, you have what I call the after stage. So we might have a tendency to be caught in certain habit, in certain reactions, so certain conditions arise, and then we get very upset, very anxious, or whatever it might be, very angry, whatever it is. And so we go through the whole thing, and then like all thing, it stops, and then we, oh, I was so upset, I was so angry, I was so anxious, but I am not anymore. To me, this is actually a letting go. Because what often can happen is that you feel righteous, to be angry. I was angry, yes, for good reason. Yes, 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 yes. They did a bad thing, yes. So we kind of really nearly revolt in, yes, I had my right to be angry and I can continue to be angry even if it's at a lower level. And so to really not be angry anymore and say, oh yeah, it happened. I was so angry. Now not. I was so anxious. Now not. And that, I think, is an important thing to notice, that it stopped. That, I think, to me, is one of the important practices we can do in daily life, to see when something has stopped to arise. Because the seeing and knowing what arises is also to see the stopping of it. Not just the arising of it, but also the stopping of it. And so to see, oh, it's gone. I am not like that anymore. I am not experiencing this anymore. And that is very important to dissolve the idea, I am always like this, and even if I don't look like this, it's underneath waiting to come up. I don't think it's underneath waiting to come up. It just come up upon certain conditions, and then it goes. And then, of course, it can come back up again. So really experiencing, one could say, the absence of something. 
having is letting go. Then you have the next one. And so maybe you have practiced for a little bit, you have done mindfulness, and then you're in the middle. I call it the middle. You're in the middle and you're so aware. You're angry, you're anxious, you're upset. But the fact that you're so mindful of it doesn't seem to make a difference. <laughs> and so it's very frustrating. Because at least before you could enjoy being angry. <laughs> but now, you can't really. So in a way, you see yourself going through the motion, you're like, wait a minute. I'm angry. And so, in, but personally, I think it's a very good, this is a moment to really see and know what has a reason. How does it feel? to be angry, to be anxious, to be upset. How does it feel? And in a way, before we can let go of it, we have to really know it in the whole body and mind. And then, here, the letting go here is that generally you don't intensify it. You cannot amplify it because you don't believe in it as much as before. And so just by that seeing, it's still there. But it might last less long. It might be less intense because you're aware of what's going on. So you're less, in a way, totally lost, invested in it. Then there is the next one. And it's what I call at the beginning. And so at the beginning is when you start to notice you're not always angry, upset, anxious, jealous, or whatever. You're not always like this. Then you start to see and know that certain conditions make it arrive. Certain conditions. And then you start to see there are triggers, they are contributing factor and they are conditioned. And that is part of the exploration. We're not trying to stop having different emotion, etc., etc. But we try to understand how does it happen? How does it arrive? And then you can start to see there are certain triggers. There are certain contributing factors, and there are certain conditions. And this is interesting because sometimes, in the same condition, you don't react. And then you have the same condition, and you react. And it could be the contributing factor, like not sleeping well, being ill, being stressed, or whatever, being tired or whatever it might be. And so then, at that point, there can be more creativity in terms of if you start to see the trigger, the contributing factor, and the condition, you might be able to de-trigger, to see, oh, in this situation, I have a tendency to do that. If I change a little the situation, can I be less triggered? I used to, when I was tired, I used to be irritable. And then I looked for somebody to be irritated with, because <laughs> it was not my fault. Somebody else must have done it. Until I realized the person has not done anything, and it was me who was irritable because I was tired. And then I started to be much more aware of the signal of the body for tiredness. And then I went to rest. And then I was much less irritable. So in a way, we have to learn the see and knowing what arises in order to be able to creatively engage with it. And so we can have what, I, what is called skillful means. Maybe do something else, go somewhere else, etc., etc. So again, we can be 
quite creative with it. And then there is another letting go, which I call before. And this, I think, we develop over time with the practice. Because in order for this one to happen, the power of the mindfulness has to be to a certain degree. So the power of the seeing and the knowing what arises has to be quite grown enough. So you can see yourself. You can see the condition. And then you can make the choice to do something different, but totally different. In the, at the beginning, it's more like you see yourself a little bit within the condition. What I'm talking about before is when you suddenly have the wisdom, like you see, you, you, the condition are there for you to get upset or whatever, and suddenly something within you, you say, should I do this again? I've been doing this for the last 30 years. Should I do this again? Or should I do something totally different? Something I have never done before. And at that moment, a great fear arrives. Because, in a way, we prefer merely to do something which is painful that we know than to do something we don't know, which could be not painful, but we've not experienced it. But if there is enough power in the creative mindfulness awareness, then we take our chances. We say, okay, this one time I do something totally different. And you do. Because in that moment, you have this creative moment. And then you feel such ease. And you think, why did not I do this before? Because in a way, the power of the habit was stronger than the power of the mindfulness, of the seeing, of the knowing. This happened to me long ago. I used to have this habit or if somebody hurt me, I would ignore them. I mean, when I was young, I would do this for weeks. But as I meditated, it improved in length. So, I, you know, a few days. <laughs> <laughs> and then one day somebody said something which hurt me, and, you know, we were all living in a community, so for breakfast, you know, I hear she's in the kitchen, and I can see the... Mm. <laughs> And then suddenly there is this idea I could do something different. And then there is a fear. Do something different? You've never done anything different. And I thought, why not? Let's go for it. So I went into the kitchen, I smiled, said hello. And it was so easeful. I thought, why didn't I do this before? It's so easy not to react in that way. But after that, I could never do it again. Because in that moment, only compassion arose. And I understood how painful my reaction could be for the other person. Imagine somebody ignoring you for days. How painful this must have been. But before, I was only thinking of my pain. I did not think of the pain of the other person. So in a way, these different stages of letting go, these are different moments. They're not better than the other. But to see that through our practice, we can have these different moments of degrasping. And so we have to be careful of thinking, Ah, letting go is just this type of letting go. I think there are many different ways we can let go when we are especially into our daily life. That's what I wanted to say.
So there is a little time for question, but there was a good note. I mean, there are lots of good notes, but this one was appropriate to this talk. So this one was like, you know, we're going a little bit back to the feeling tone, to the tonality of experience. And so the person uh, is saying, I doubt the Vedana, the tonality is inherent in the thing itself. Then are we deciding a thing is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, choosing to label it one way or the other. So, okay, uh, no, I have to read it all. I was going to shorten, but a sensation, sound, object, smell, taste, thought is only as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral as we choose to label, label it that way. We could equally choose the opposite. And who is choosing? Then are all things inherently neutral? And how does Vedana, feeling tone, tie into wholesome and unwholesome and a habit? I mean, this is like kind of a talk in itself. But uh, the point I wanted to point out was that one of the very important things about this seeing and knowing what arises in terms of the tonality of experience is that, yes indeed, it is not generally in the object. It's because the tonality, that's what is very uh, interesting to look at tonality, it's constant. Tonality is conditioned by history, by culture, by experience. But if you imagine that the tonality is in the thing itself, then it gets a little problematic. Like, for example, uh, you think that somebody, something is good by itself. The other day I mentioned rhubarb, and generally, if I'm not mistaken, uh, British people generally think rhubarb is good. <laughs> Personally, possibly as a French person, I could be influenced by my culture. I used to think it was pretty bad. <laughs> But having li lived in England, I reached neutrality <laughs> toward rhubarb. But generally, I would not eat it unless forced to. <laughs> so in a way, you have the same thing, rhubarb. And some people see rhubarb and think, wow, rhubarb. And some other think, ooh. No, and then, you know, one person says, come on, it's so good. And you're so persuaded, it's so good for everybody all the time. I mean, I do this with mango. You know, mango is great. And somebody tells me, I hate mango. I said, oh, you have not had a good one. You have not had a good one. You know, so I force them to eat mango, a good one. And they say, so in a way, we have to be careful. This is a very interesting point to see that the tonality depends on so many things. You have the thing itself, you have your own kind of history or experience with it. I personally like ice cream in the summer. But again, this is one of the things which is a mystery to me, is why do people eat ice cream in winter? I think it's cold enough. You don't want to be colder. I eat ice cream to be cold when it's so hot in France. That's the only thing that will cool me down. So I have a very different relationship to ice cream. I don't eat it for the taste. I generally eat it for the coolness. So again, again how do we consider things according to weather, geography, everything? So it depends. The tonality really depends 
on so many different conditions. That's why I think it's something which is fascinating to explore. And I would not say that everything becomes neutral. Not. It just depends. It just depends again on so many different things. But I don't think the aim is everything becoming neutral. No. But in a way, I think in terms of the wholesome and unwholesome connected to the tonality, the Buddha, like, there is, if you want, if you're interested in Vedana, you go, after the retreat, you go to Access to Insight. It's a wonderful website. And then in the search thing, you put Vedana, and then you get the text related to it. And then you have this wonderful text where the Buddha said there is 108 types of Vedana. <laughs> and then you have this whole way. And within this 108, you have, you could say, the wholesome, the afflicted, and the non-afflicted, the unwholesome. And so here it's more about, am I grasping at them or not? Do I see the changing nature? Do I see the unpredictable nature? Do I see the conditioned nature? And that will make it skillful or unskillful. So basically, that's where the wholesome and unwholesome is not the thing in itself, is in a way, what do we do with it? And also, how do we creatively engage with it? But that's answering very short, short this wonderful comment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.